it up till after a deal is made with North Korea. Does everybody understand that? Do you know why, right? Do you know why? Because it's a very strong card. And I want to make sure everyone is treated fairly and we're moving along very nicely with North Korea. We'll see what happens. Certainly, the rhetoric has calmed down just a little bit, would you say? Would you say? And we'll see how it all turns out. Maybe it'll be good and maybe it won't. And if it's no good, we're walking. And if it's good, we will embrace it. But uh, it's going to be very interesting over the next period of time. And uh, South Korea has been wonderful. But we'll probably hold that deal up for a little while. See how it all plays out. Join now, America Morning Glory, by Dr. Larry Arn on the Hugh Hewitt Show. It's time for the Hillsdale Dialogue. But I wanted to, since we're talking about the Constitution, begin our time together, Dr. Arn, by playing a little bit of the president in his role as commander-in-chief, as outlined in Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, conducting American foreign policy. Happy Easter to you. A blessed Passover to our Jewish friends. What would you make of that comment by the president? Well, that's what the president's for. That's... <laughs> One of the most important provisions in the Constitution of the United States is, is the appointment of the president as commander-in-chief. And, uh, you know, when, when somebody gets that job, they're stronger today than they should be because the Constitution is warped in many ways, but not as regards this function. Uh, one voice to the outside world and one voice in command of the military in wartime and peace. And uh, I will tell you that British, uh, Winston Churchill had various views over his life, about whether the British or the American Constitution was superior. He never really thought the American was superior, but he often thought it equal. But he never varied that the commander-in-chief provision would be a blessing to Britain if it could get it. It messed up Britain in the First World War that it didn't have it, and he effectively achieved it in the Second World War. When he took command as being Minister of Defense at the same time that he was Prime Minister, correct? Yeah, and then defended that job. There was a vote of no confidence against him in 1943, and uh, uh, they had a really brilliant, great bunch of war heroes, including Roger Key, Admiral Roger Keyes, who had been promoted to that by Churchill, um, he, who came and said, he's doing too much, he has to sacrifice one of his jobs. And uh, early on, Churchill disrupted the debate by saying, the House can have all of my jobs on any day, it can't take one of them. And then Keyes stood up and said, I withdraw my support for this motion. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's the parliamentary approach. I love that. Well, I have spent, um, given that he is commander in chief, though, that I had in mind that we would talk today about how you assemble around you teams of leaders. And that, that goes right into it, given that we are on the cusp of confirmation hearings for uh, CIA Director Mike Pompeo to become the Secretary of State. Uh, for John Bolton, doesn't need a confirmation hearing. He will be arriving at the White House on April 9th as the National Security Advisor uh, and will office next to you know General Allen, the Chief of Staff. Uh, Joe Dunford is in his job. Jim Mattis is in his job. But Gina Haspel needs her job confirmed over at the CIA. And so I described it to Stavridis as Mike Pompeo will be the president's right arm, James Mattis his left hook, Bolton and Allen his cornermen, and Gina Haspel and Dunford, the ones up in the box doing grand strategy and maybe sending notes down. What do you think about this team? What do you think specifically of Mike Pompeo? That's a good image. So I know Mike Pompeo pretty well. I know him through Tom Cotton, their, their friends. And um, he's an impressive man, of course. He's a soldier. Uh, he uh, has a distinguished war record. 
he's a no-nonsense guy, and he's very clever. He's uh, To talk to him is to talk to a man who says things rich with meaning and care. So, and, and he's also, you know, he's a regular guy. He's, you know, he... I watched a football game with him one time, and Tom Cotton and our wives, and, and they're they're uh, so yeah. He's I'm just, surprised that Tom Cotton knows anything about football. He's from Arkansas. Yeah, there you go. Well, you know, I I would make a joke about Ohio State and their ability to read, but I'd, I'd be on weak ground when the Razorbacks come up. <laughs> <laughs> so you watch the football. Actually, that's a very good. It's like playing around a golf with someone, watching yeah. a football game with someone. Well, Tom Cotton's wife is a big time. Packers fan, oh, that's and uh, sad. that's partly just she just cottoned on to him when she was young, and uh, she's from Minnesota, and so that that's uh, odd, isn't that odd? Yeah. But uh, she loves Packers, and so they came over to watch a playoff game where the Packers won, although they didn't win the Super Bowl that year. So the rest of us were all very glad to support Anna Cotton, <laughs> and it was it was fun, and mostly it was you know it was. Uh, the kind of conversations you'd have at a football game, right? We talked right. about every, we talked about business, some about politics, some, but we talked about every kind of thing. And yeah, so I, I think Pompeo is one of the most uh, steady, reliable, informed guys, and he's got real strength of understanding. So I think he's going to be super at that job. I had the great honor of shaking hands with George Schultz this week um, up at Hoover. And, of course, he introduced himself as a Marine to the assembled gathered there to, to listen to Scott Pruitt, who's doing things and shaking things up, and as a result, getting the attacks of the left growing with increasing fury. But uh, George Schultz was introduced himself as a Marine, but I thought Pompeo can, can stay as long at Trump's side as Schultz did at Reagan's. And, uh, and I am reminded of late Reagan team of George Schultz, Howard Baker as chief of staff, James Baker as the secretary of the Treasury. Over at the CIA, they had... Um, uh, Bob Gates, of all people, they had quite the collection of talents. And I think with this collection of talents, we're getting close, which brings me to Bolton. I have to play for you, and you know John Bolton well, and I know John Bolton well. Here is Secretary of Defense General James Mattis welcoming John Bolton to the Pentagon yesterday. Cut number one. Mr. Bolton. Mr. Secretary, it's so good, good to, to see you. you. Thank you for Thanks inviting for, me over. Oh, no. Yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming, and uh, it's good to finally meet you. Since I've heard that you're absolutely uh, devil incarnate, I wanted to meet you. <laughs> Did you hear that? I heard you were the devil incarnate, and I wanted to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a mar- that's a marine talking. <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> it's his knife out. <laughs> what do you think about John Bolton? This is his. He's prepared his entire life for this job. That's what I tell people. And talk about the smartest guy in the room. I don't know who wins the Jeopardy game between Mattis, Pompeo, and Bolton. Do you? Well, they're, uh, so there's a wonderful, uh, I've been thinking like this the last few days. There's a wonderful uh, uh, passage in Bruce Catton's biography, A History of the, of the Civil War, and he talks about the day on, a, on the presidential yacht in the Potomac when Ulysses Grant and Phil Sheridan and William Sherman and Abraham Lincoln sat down to confer. And he said, and Catton remarks that when those four men were finally assembled together to work together, the war was decided in principle. Ah. And, uh, you know, Lincoln, like Trump, went through a lot of people to get the ones he wanted. And uh, I have noticed that these appointments get stronger. And see, I think H.R. McMaster is a great guy. And 
uh, I, I think Bolton is better suited than anybody uh, to be national security advisor, and that's the only reason he would be better than McMaster. And uh, so, I, yeah, I, I think it's uh, exciting. I think they're going to know what they're doing, and uh, I think they're probably going to get along. Um, that's always hard to say. And, you know, they, Madison Bolton don't know each other. And uh, but Bolton is, you know, Bolton is uh, there's a kind of a foreign policy establishment on both the left and the right among the thinking classes or chattering classes, whichever they are. And uh, they have uh, reached agreement about some things in the past that didn't always turn out to be fortunate. And Bolton has often been a rebel against that. So I think he'll be some I think he's going to think like Trump about protecting the interests of the United States first. And I think he's going to see that our strategic position is difficult. And, uh, you know, and it's lately getting worse. And so I think he's going to understand that he's maneuvering in a situation where we need to be smart. And if we are, we'll be fine. Um, you know, and we need to build some more weapons, too. And as we saw from this last budget deal, people need to understand this. The last... Uh, uh, spending bills are just outrageous, just you know, massive. And and uh, on the other hand, that's the kind of game, same game that went on in the Reagan administration, where you couldn't get military increases uh, through the Congress without paying for them twice, or yep. twice over, or more. So, but you know, we we need to look at these countries, look at that we're we're up against, you know, Iran and North Korea and Russia and China, they understand weapons first before they understand anything else. So all this talking and stuff, that, that list of people that you just named, some of them are diplomacy, that's their job, and some of them are military power. And the great Harold Rood, a teacher of mine, used to teach a class called Diplomacy and Military Power. Those two things go together. We'll be back to talk about how with Dr. Larry Aaron. Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. Sign up for Imprimus. All of our prior Hillsdale dialogues, including this one on the Commander-in-Chief and his team, are available at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. And I will be right back with Dr. Larry Aaron on this Good Friday. Stay tuned. Yeah, John's an extraordinarily uh, bright, bright guy. <laughs> I gave him his first job, I think, in government in the in the first Reagan term when I uh, when I suggested that he uh, find a spot in the White House Counsel's Office. He was very effective for us. He was effective in the um, in the first Bush administration. Uh, controversial in the second Bush administration. John has some very deeply held views, m- many of which I disagree with fundamentally but he's a i think he's i know he's a patriot and he's an extraordinarily able and capable uh, public servant now will he get along will he defer to the secretary of state the way he should this the, the job he's now in is one of consensus and coordination not so much one of articulating your own views although you're free to express those to the president time will tell 
Uh, that is former Secretary of State James Baker, one of the great living Americans, also a Marine like George Schultz. I am in the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale, collected at hillsdale.edu. And all of our conversations are found at hugh4hillsdale.com. What did you make of Secretary Baker's assessment of John Bolton? They have a mutual admiration society, which surprises a lot of the people you, you refer to as the sometimes thinking, sometimes chattering class. Often they do both, sometimes they do neither. But what did you, what did you think of that? Well, uh, I was reading the paper this morning about Bolton, and uh, like Baker, there's a wide range of people who find Bolton impressive and effective, and uh, that was the burden. You know, he, he, so James Baker, he just said that, that the National Security Advisor is supposed to defer to the Secretary of State. Well, you know, I don't think so. I think the National Security Council and its, and its advisor are to advise the president. And, uh, you know, they don't work for the Secretary of State. They work for the president. And uh, that the president needs people around him who can give him their best advice and owe their loyalty to him as the Secretary of State ought to. So it's, uh, so I, I didn't think that part was right. But I think Bolton is, uh, Bolton's tough, right? He's, he's very articulate. He's very quick. He's very direct. And so he's an imposing man, and yet there's records of lots of people who've worked with him who say, yeah, this guy's a serious guy. Watch him go. You know, there is a um, debate among presidential scholars about the, the office of the National Security Advisor. There is a Scowcroft model, which is the coordinating whispering model. And there is the Henry Kissinger model, which is the dominating and making sure the last man in the room is the Secret National Security Advisor model. And you have to choose one or both, uh, maybe on different days. I kind of think John Bolton will be in the latter category. What do you think? <laughs> well... I think uh, Donald Trump is likely to continue to be president of the United States until his term is out. <laughs> and I think he will decide that. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting uh, that goes into this conversation. Mike Pompeo has spent probably more time with President Trump than any other cabinet member because he does the daily intelligence briefing. Uh, right. And so he spends he's often there. Uh, I interviewed him for MSNBC on the record. He said this. Uh four times a week. And in every conversation, President Trump brings up North Korea. I know John Bolton's been in and out of the White House, but he does not have that relationship. I know Secretary Mattis is much admired, but he's around the world visiting the troops. The guy who's been there every day has been Mike Pompeo. I imagine he will be, like I said, the right arm of the president. Mm-hmm. Well, Pompeo is going to move away from the president, right? I yep. mean, just, just think, if you, it's, it's a, we, we're, the government is huge and all that and very coordinated, uh, and mal-coordinated, but distance, human distance matters, right? And so it's one thing if you go in there four days a week and give him a regular briefing that fits a pattern, by the way, which means that he's expecting to talk with you and can have prepared what he wants to say different in addition to the briefing. This is The Secretary of State doesn't do that. And so Pompeo, you know, he's got, and he will have, a wider a wider distance from the president just physically. So I think that they'll continue to get on and be close. And I think these conversations that they've had four times a week are going to be valuable because they're going to both be out around the world making judgments, and there'll be a better chance they'll make, it, make them better alike, and they confer and get together and agree what they're going to say quicker than if they hadn't had all that. When we get back, we're going to talk about when Churchill would go abroad and uh, and leave Eden at home or take him with him, whether it was to Morocco or to Tehran or to Moscow. We'll talk about that with Dr. Larry Arn, Churchill biographer. 
Every one of these conversations at HughForHillsdale.com. Go nowhere, America, except right here. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, the Lantern of the North, I call it, all things Hillsdale, H-E-L-L-S-D-A-L-E dot E-D-U, Hillsdale dot E-D-U, including Dr. Arn's course on the Constitution, including his course on Churchill, from which we will shortly draw. All of our conversations in these Hillsdale dialogues, which date back to 2013, are collected at Hugh4Hillsdale.com, Hugh4Hillsdale.com. Dr. Arn, I had, I had mentioned before the break, um, we get in a new Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. He will be confirmed rather quickly, I believe, uh, because we have urgent meetings abroad that are that are looming. But that, as you noted, and as I noted at the start of the show, the Commander in Chief, the head of the Executive Branch for whom Mike Pompeo works, is, is President Trump. President Trump travels a lot. Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, will travel a lot. How was it with Churchill and his men and women when he went abroad? When he he went a traveling a lot, and in those days. Comms weren't very good, and the traveling was very long. Yeah, and you know, it's uh, such a blessing that comms weren't very good because, uh, you know, they flow, they just stream. You know, we're, we're, we're just about to wrap up the, the document volume that goes to July, end of July 1945, and of course, that's sad because it's the end of the war and because Churchill loses the election. And he loses the election right in the middle of the Potsdam conference, the conference that in the last meeting of the big three, you know. And they make, they have this really happy conference, and then Russia within 30 days had violated all of its uh, main promises regarding Eastern Europe. So Attlee, the deputy prime minister and the man who beat Churchill in that election and put in the first socialist government, is with Churchill. And Eden is there. So who are they communicating with? And the answer is the war cabinet, five people, two of them gone. Uh, and, uh, and, they, and there's, a, kit, there's a, uh, a report every day from Churchill, usually just one, although there are various other inquiries and questions of people. He was like Rumsfeld about that. And they're very well put. Churchill could really write. And so one of the main sources of knowing what's going on is these things they write back and forth to each other, and they're not long, but they're precise. And I'll bet Pompeo has the gift of that. Uh, just think, Churchill, you know, in, in the greatest war in history, is running not just the government, but the Ministry of Defense, and he's got time to write these things. He dictated them, but it's just like sort of, he dictated them at the same reason, at the same speed that you and I are talking right now. You say something, I say something back. What it, those memos are like that. And Boy, so, his yeah. secretaries must have been exhausted. Oh yeah. Well, there were teams of them, right? And he worked them. They started at seven thirty and they ended at three o'clock in the morning. Sometimes. Huh. Huh. <laughs> uh, but, so now, um, in the days when everything is monitored, when every call is is collected and processed by hostile intelligence agencies, though. It becomes very dangerous. I, you've got to have a, a what they call a skiff, a sensitive compartmented information system uh, facility in order to do this. What do you think? Does that inhibit? You think that holds people back? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, all that's, you know, computers, too. They, they probably communicate more freely and frequently than today than Churchill could. And I, what, what I was meaning to say earlier is, to some extent, that's a disadvantage uh, because it's probable that uh, a lot of things are not formulated 
as well as they used to be. Uh, you know, it's you chatter all the time, and uh, that's what email is like, right? As opposed to writing letters. So there's some of that, but you know, if there, it, it's it's if two people, if you know, you we, you're talking about four people today who are all very important in the foreign policy and military policy of the United States. If they're on the same page and they're used to each other, that can be wonderfully productive and keep everybody on the same page and keep policy then unified, which is the prime, uh, you know, the two things. What is the executive for, according to the Federalist and the Constitutional Convention? It's for energy and it's for uh, 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 responsibility. So energy means he can act. The president can act. You know, just what, you know, Donald Trump, he just acts all the time, right? He's very, and he's, he's uh, creative, imaginative. Some say helter-skelter, but gosh, he does big things all the time. And I think there's some direction to them. And uh, that's, he gets that. And then responsibility, how do you get that? And the answer is... Uh, you, you, and there's an election coming, always. And the Congress is always a problem to the president. This one, with his party in the, in the majority, is not doing big things he wants. I think that might cost them. I hope not in, in, in the election this fall. But uh, so, yeah, he's got, he's, he's, he's got strength and unity to act. And on the other hand, he can be brought up short. Oh, very. It's it's so fascinating when you put together a team of leaders. And uh, I know you've done that at Hillsdale. You've done that in other situations before at Claremont Organization, Claremont Institute. But on every it's the same for every leader. You've got to be comfortable in your own ability to surround yourself with strong people. As Don Rumsfeld used to say, A's hire A's. Yeah. You you know, you uh it's kind of, right, you know, our, our, at the college, our business is complicated, and it happens all over the country and all over the world, all the time. And uh, you know, at any given day, there are senior people at the college that are in four different cities. And so that's right. You know, I got an email this morning about a negotiation in California that's consequential to the college, and the guy doing it is very good, despite the fact that he's a lawyer. <laughs> and uh, and. Uh, and so, Some of us recover, you know. Yeah, that's right. You know, you know sometimes yeah, that's right. after, a t- after a period away from law school, some people recover their sense. <laughs> but, yeah, he's uh, – so that's right. And you got to – and see, another thing is – You know, i got to pause there. You know, both Michael Pompeo and Tom Cotton, your football-watching friends, are Harvard lawyers, and that's actually the most dangerous place of all to learn the law. Yeah, and Pompeo went to West Point, which helps. Yeah. But uh, – and, and – uh, Cotton, you know, grew up on a farm and served in the army, and so that that helped. That, that got, <laughs> got the stink of him off the place. <laughs> but you're right. So you've got this lawyer doing stuff for you in City A, and you've got people in City B, City D, and you're you're stuck in Hillsdale or at the Kirby Center in D.C., and you're running a complex organization. It's always the same thing. Yeah, that's right. And you have to you have to uh, the people you work with have to be competent. Uh, they have to trust each other, right? Like, y- you learn from a hard experience. People love to keep secrets. You know, it's a kind of a natural tendency, except among the best people. So uh, the default at Hillsdale College is everybody knows the thing who needs to know it. And uh, uh, you don't, you, you know, and if, so, if somebody's got a beef with somebody, 
they they uh, I stood when I first got to the college I would do this they would send me an email about their complaint about somebody and I would answer it and copy the person they were talking about and uh, that that was a sign to everybody that we really need to figure this stuff out together don't we yeah. And, you know, you change the team some as time goes on because some people don't take to that. Uh, but just but just think of this simple practical thing: if you have a conversation going on with three different people, and the, and and they're all writing to you about the same thing, and you're writing them back, and you can't share it, that troubles the number of communications. Do you know that uh, one of the most impressive people I've ever met is General Stanley McChrystal? who basically won the war by uh, in Iraq by killing Zarqawi. And he took over the uh, special operations there uh, when he was working for Petraeus. And he wrote a book called Team of Teams. And the way he did that, he accelerated the tempo of the special operators, I think it was 700% in uh, one year, kills, kills or captures. Mm-hmm. And he did that by holding a daily conference call that eventually grew into the thousands of participants. I said, General, how could you hold? And, and he would participate. And he would encourage his underlings to rebuke him and argue with him in order to model how you do this. And it's a fascinating chapter. I said, but how could you have that many thousands of people on a conference call? I said, either you trust your people or you don't. And we're, we're in a business that takes a lot of trust because they're trying to kill us. That's right. And, and see, if you, can't, if you don't trust them, it's not just that you might fail to trust somebody because they're untrustworthy, but more commonly... You might fail to trust somebody because you just don't communicate very well. And sometimes you have to change things like that. You know, I make very few changes in the staff at Hillsdale College. And it's growing, and so it's restructuring all the time. But we all just figure all that out together. And, and, uh, it's, and see, that rebuke you. You know, we have a Monday morning staff meeting, and, and sort of about a half the Mondays, we can all be there. Most of us can, almost all of us, and the rest of it uh, on a on a TV screen. And the point is, you just watch their faces. You know, you can, if I say, I thought of doing this, and then I'll describe it. And then I, and just, before they even start talking, you just look at them. Sometimes I'll say, okay, so that won't work. <laughs> <laughs> well, with you, that's probably, you've learned to recognize that. That's pattern recognition. <laughs> that's exactly right. Now, know? I got to, before we go to break, I got to ask you this. Um, this brings me to Ronnie Jackson, the, the admiral who is the president's, physician, the White House physician, he actually serves everyone in the White House, but the president among them, who has been named to take over the Veterans Administration. He's being scorned as not having run a large organization. Now, look, you don't get to be admiral in the United States Navy without being really good, and you don't get to be the White House physician without being really good. There is, um, in Washington, D.C., a vanity about experience that is overwhelming to me. It's just often credits people with a greatly undeserved expertise because they've hung around a lot of different buildings with big names and denies that you might have genius in the person of this admiral. There's a highly paid, this Washington disease, they're highly paid campaigns consultants who still make a fortune and who never win. <laughs> yeah, who never win. <laughs> so you think, a, you think a single big naval vessel is not a big organization? Yeah, but this guy, an admiral, he commands many. <laughs> so that's ridiculous. Now it's possible that you could not know the ways of uh, of bureaucratic politics in Washington. Uh, I was on the board of the Army War College, and I I learned somewhat to my chagrin that the colonels all want to get a sense of what it's like to be in the Pentagon. Right, most soldiers happily are not there, 
because it's very political there, right? But uh, and and so some, but I don't think experience with that is the thing so much as aptitude for it. I agree. You need to be very perceptive. That's it. Aptitude, not experience. I'll be right back. One more segment with Dr. Larry Arn as we talk about the president's commander in chief, Article 2, Section 2, don't go anywhere. Plus, a question about college admissions on a week that a lot of people are disappointed with a man who runs a college where a lot of people didn't get in. Uh, what do you tell those who didn't? Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn. Welcome back, America. I'm with Dr. Larry Arn, my friend and uh, president of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. And I want to read to him. I do this annually with him, I think, uh, this week. A story in the Wall Street Journal this morning. Harvard hit a new low this year in terms of its acceptance rate, writes Melissa Korn. The university admitted 4.6% of its applicants, or 1,962 students, for a class set to begin in the fall. Last year, it admitted 5.2% of applicants. Go on to note that this is going on throughout. Princeton had a... Uh, uh, 14,200 of the 35,000 people who applied had 4.0 grade point averages. Uh, goes on to note as well that Cornell accepted more than 700 first-generation college students and more than 20% of Harvard's admitted students and 23% of Princeton's are eligible for federal Pell Grants, which are aimed at low-income students. It goes on to talk about just generally the disappointment and the success of people. And Dr. Arndt, what do you tell those people not who are happy today, but who are disappointed on their Wednesday letters? Um, well, if you're serious about going to college, and you shouldn't go unless you're serious, there'll be a place for you to go. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the college system in America is, in fact, uh, over-generous. We, we steer people to college who, ought, who, who, first of all, ought to... Too bad they didn't, but they should have been offered a better high school education. And then a lot of people, they should, you know, what is what do you need to know? Let me, I can list it for you. You need to know human skills, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Those are the reasoning skills. You need to be good at those things. Then you need to know things. You need to knowledge. You need history and philosophy and literature and the natural sciences. Everybody needs to know those things. And everybody could know those things through high school or two years of college, or four, and then everybody needs work, right? So uh, so the first thing to know is, it's not the end of the world if you don't go to college. And then the second thing to know is, if you're determined to go, after you heard what I just said, then that means you're probably an excellent candidate to go to college, and there'll be some college you can go to. And, and the... I've tried to impress upon this. Everyone ends up at the right place. It's my real view that anyone, everyone ends up at the right place. And what you learn at whatever place you end up at is what matters and how you conduct yourself with the best professors that you can find. And there are always some good ones, right? You've got more than your share. You are disproportionately full of good professors. But there are always some good ones anywhere, right? That's right. And, uh, you know, my, my, my life and I bet in your life, Harvey Mansfield, uh, were changed by certain professors we, we met, and we met a lot of others. And so you, you, you look for that. You know, I, our, Harvard is unusual. Uh, you know, it's Harvard, and that's a single name that means a lot, right? Uh, Hillsdale is unusual. It does something different. It's famous for doing something different. It's very stubborn about that. And so, of course, people can be crushed if they don't get into any of the places that are unusually admired by them for, un, for because they're unusual and that's 
you know, hard, you know, for us, we're not very big. We're growing some and going to grow, I think. But uh, I, I've said for 18 years now that there is no earthly reason for Hillsdale College to grow. And there is one now, and that is angry letters from old friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good reason, and I know why you get them. Let me now tell you about James Pethokoukas, uh, who you, you may know, James, uh, had tweeted out this morning, at college-admitted student day with daughter, 17, her orders, quote, you are on talking restriction, no questions, <laughs> close quote. <laughs> and other people are replying, been there. And, you know, it's because oh. many people, are, they're walking around on eggs, right? It, uh, it, I took uh, all of my children on a college visit during the course of their growing up. And in uh, three of the cases, the student, my child, was in the room with me, sitting by me, when they were having parents' Q&A with, like, 200 parents in the room. And every time I would hold up my hand, I was kicked. But then, so I didn't get to say anything. But, but in one of them, it was a blessed thing. They separated us. <laughs> and I was able to make a stink. And, uh, you know, it is amazing, by the way. Parents should listen to this. I bet your, our, our listeners don't do this. But at, at, at four of those things that I went to, all of the, none of the questions were about what college is really about. They were all about dorm room, parties, friendship, personal attention, success, uh, grades, how do you get a job, none of that, right? And in one of them, the one where I was especially liberated, I held up my hand toward the end, somewhere I, where I got a lot of education, and I said, what will you teach my daughter and what will her character be like when you finished? Ah. And like every head snapped around at me. <laughs> and then the man on the stage said, uh, Hello, Dr. Arn. Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, happy Easter, poor guy. <laughs> he probably saw you come in the room and said, Oh, gosh, here we go again. Uh, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, happy Easter to you. 